to go ahead and get started by saying welcome back to the table. Today we're going to be talking about gratitude. Um, gratitude is something that is, I think, neglected a little bit um, in our culture today. Um, so I want to start off with a little bit of a story. Um, for those of you who don't know, we have a baby. We just recently had a baby. Um, and the birth of our baby was quite a miraculous thing. Um, and I just want to walk you through some of the miraculous things that happened that day. Um, number one was Johanna's parents were able to come back um, for the birth of their grandchild. Um, that may not seem like a big deal, but when you realize that they are um, from Africa and that it took like three or four different flights to get here. They were on the plane for like over 18 hours. They had to get two COVID tests. Like it was a big deal. And they got here the day before the baby was born. I just think that that's so cool. Um, and then that night, um, before our daughter came, um, we were with Johanna's parents and, uh, we were just telling them about everything. And he mentioned how far are you guys from the, from the hospital? And, because we live here, I said, we're close to 45 minutes. And he said, no, he said, we're not doing that. I'm getting you a hotel 10 minutes away from the hospital. And I was like, no, 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 you don't have to do that, whatever. And he goes, no, I'm getting you a hotel. And I said, yes, sir. Because that's what you do when your father-in-law looks at you and says, no, you say yes. So that's what you do. And we were 10 minutes away from the hospital. It ended up working awesome because when Johanna needed an epidural, she was able to get one. And if we would have been 45 minutes away, she wouldn't have been able to get that epidural. Praise the Lord for epidurals. We love drugs. We're all about them. Recommend them for sure, 100%. So I just, I just want to walk you through what the epidural was like, okay? So they, the, the, nurse, the nurse comes in. She goes, she goes, listen, I don't know if you're going to make it to an epidural, because this baby is coming like right now. And I started to weep. I just wept because I was like, I don't know what we're going to do. She needs drugs. I need drugs. Something needs to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. So then not five minutes later, and she said, you know, the, the anesthesiologist, he's, he's tied up. He can't come. First of all, like tied up. I'm like, what else is he doing? And then I'm like, oh yeah, we're at a hospital. He's giving other people drugs. That's what he does. So then I'm like, well, he's got to come. He needs to get here. And then as I'm weeping, this man walks in his room and I, I can only describe him as like a skinny grew, you know, like I'm talking despicable me grew. I'm thinking that. And then he comes up to me and he goes, I am anesthesiologist. I give your wife the good stuff. <laughs> I said, I don't care what you give her. Just give it to her. So he gives her an epidural. I'm not even kidding. Within five minutes, that pain was gone. She was asleep. How you can go from pushing a child out of your body <laughs> to falling asleep? That is incredible. 10 out of 10 would recommend epidurals. <laughs> That's just my opinion. So after we get the epidural, the doctor is like, or I'm sorry, not the doctor, the nurse is like, this baby is coming right now, okay? And I'm like, okay, then where's the doctor? And she goes, oh, he went home. What? What do you mean he went home? Turns out the doctor just got to the end of his shift, so he packed up and was on his way home. The doctor who was coming in for his shift hadn't got there yet. 
So we're like, what's going on? So they call the doctor who's on his way in, and he says, I'm too far away. That baby's coming, like, right now. So they call the doctor who just left, who had been there all night long delivering babies, and he's like, yeah, I'll turn back around. I'll get there. And I was like, okay, whatever. Didn't plan on that. Don't know this guy, but sure, let's have him deliver our baby. So he comes back in. It was perfect. He was the man who needed to be there. And he was like cracking jokes with us right after the birth, which is like really weird when you think about it, but also like sets you super at ease because you're like just witnessed a pretty traumatic event. And then he's able to like, you know, like crack jokes about it. And you're like, this feels a little inappropriate, but I'm also like, you know, it's kind of nice. So I guess it's okay. It was just, uh, the only word that I can use to describe all of that together was miraculous. Like it was easy for me to be grateful in that moment because it was easy for me to see God's hand in that moment. I believe that God orchestrated Johanna's parents being able to be there. I believe that God orchestrated us being in that hotel. I believe that God prompted my father-in-law to put us up in that hotel. I believe that God prompted that anesthesiologist to give us the good stuff. I believe that God was in each and every part of it. I believe he was in the doctor coming back and being the one that we needed in that moment. I'm fully aware of how God was in that miraculous act. Therefore, it's easy for me to be grateful for that and to be thankful for it. The process was as smooth as could be. I mean, for a birth, it was as smooth as could be. And everything of that had to do with God. And I'm very grateful to God for that. So let's look at someone else who found it easy to be grateful to Jesus. Um, In Luke chapter 17, it says, As Jesus was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance, a social distance, and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, this is Jesus talking, go show yourself to the priests. And they went and they were cleansed. Verse 15 says, one of them, when he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus's feet and thanked him. He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all 10 cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no, has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? I'll get into that in a little bit. Verse 19, then he said to him, rise and go, faith has made you well. I just want to give some context here. In biblical times, people suffering from the skin disease of leprosy, they were treated as outcasts. They were forbidden to have contact with anyone who didn't have the disease Does that sound familiar? And when they approached someone who didn't have the disease, they literally had a bell that they rung. And then they said, unclean, ding, 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 unclean. They would have to announce themselves before they got close because it was a contagious disease. If if it were today, we would call it COVID-19, right? We would call it something that you have to distance yourself from that people don't want to be around. That's what these men found themselves in. And when you had the disease you would congregate with other people who also had the disease. You would quarantine with other people who had the disease. You'd probably talk about the election and whatever's going on in that moment. So they were there together. So they see Jesus coming, and while he's a far distance off, they yell out, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. 
it's, I think it's funny that they didn't use their bell to announce themselves. They just cried out to Jesus. Believe me, in that moment with Johanna, while she was giving birth, I was crying out to Jesus because I needed him in that moment. I needed drugs. No, I needed Jesus in that moment. So Jesus heals them, right? And then what do we see the next step? He comes back and thanks him. One out of the ten comes back to thank him. It was clear that Jesus had done a work in him. Therefore, it was easy for the man to go back and be grateful to the man who healed him. I just think that that's so key. So why does it say that he was a Samaritan? Why does it just throw that piece of information in there? I want to give you some context of what that day and age was like. Back then, Samaritans were looked at as lower than Gentiles. Some, not all, Jews had a severe superiority complex. They believed that they were the top dogs. They believed that Gentiles were under them. And then they believed that Samaritans were under them. They thought that they were basically the scum of the earth. They hated them so much because they opposed the Jewish tradition and because they didn't believe in the same way that the Jews did. Does that sound familiar in today's world? Not liking someone, thinking of someone as less than equal just because they believe different than you? Listen, this may hurt, but I feel like I need to say this. I'm tired of Christians being incapable of having civil conversations over differing opinions. Please hear me on this. If someone didn't vote the same way that you would have voted, show them empathy. If someone has a different viewpoint on abortion, gay marriage, or immigration, stop contributing to the ever-widening gap between liberal and conservative, white and black and Republican and Democrat and Christian and everyone else. Stop being so closed-minded in your conversations and consider other viewpoints for the sake of building a relationship. And after love has been shown, and after empathy has been shown, bring the truth of Jesus into the foundation that you've already built on that relationship. Jesus was the perfect example of desegregation. He was the perfect example of unity of class, of race, and of status. And that is what Christians are called to be. That's what you and I are called to be in this culture. Be peacemakers who bring love-wrapped truth into this dying world. Does that make sense? So let's look at another aspect of what Jesus said in that moment that I think is a fun little detour. He says, show yourself to the priests. Now, when you hear that, you think, cool, they just went back to their pastor. They said, hey, look, you know that thing that was like eating away my skin? It's not there anymore. And then the priest would be like, you know, cool. Come join the congregation again. You know, like that's what we think of it as, or at least that's what I think of it as. That was not the process at all. This is what the Bible says was the mandate if you were cleansed of leprosy. You had to offer a bird. You had to offer a living bird as a sacrifice. You had to wash your clothes. You had to shave your head, eyebrows, and beard. You had to stay outside of your house for seven days. You had to shave everything again, wash yourself, and then offer two lambs as a burnt offering. That's a loaded statement when he says, show yourself to the priests. In other words, by Jesus saying something as simple as, go show yourself to the priests, there were 20 haircuts, 10 loads of laundry, 
10 showers, 10 birds killed, and 20 sheep killed over roughly eight days. There was a lot packed into that little sentence of go show yourself to the priests. I wonder, out of those 10 people who were cleansed of leprosy, how many of them were thankful in that moment of, wow, I'm cleansed. Thank you, Jesus. I'm so grateful. And then in the span of just those short eight days, when they were shaving their head or when they were having to go out and find a sacrifice, I wonder how many of them found themselves being ungrateful in the mundane. What is the mundane? The mundane is the day-to-day. The mundane is when it feels like time is passing, but nothing's really happening in that moment, right? Christians often characterize the mundane as when God isn't working or when God isn't moving in my life, right? That's how we look at the mundane. So let's look at the mundane from a scriptural viewpoint. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's break this down for a moment. Let's break down what he does versus what we do, starting with what we do. We walk through the valley. We fear no evil. And we dwell in the house. Those are three things. Those are three active things that we do. Just three, okay? Now let's look at what he does. Just in that one passage of scripture, Psalms 23, he makes me lie down. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He prepares a table and he anoints my head with oil. He does six things as opposed to our three things. Do you get the point that I'm making? Even when we can't feel him, even in the mundane, he is doing twice as much as we could ever even imagine. He's doing twice as much. He's putting in twice as much effort as we even think that he's putting in. Even when we can't see him, even when we can't feel God, even when it's mundane, he is doing more than we could ever comprehend. What does this look like in the real world? In the real world? <sighs> There's no other way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. I'm a 22-year-old man. I'm grown, and I wet the bed recently. That's right. I have a daughter who is under one year of age, and I'm the one that wet the bed. I did that. I am not proud of that moment. I woke up in the middle of the night exhausted from being a father, and that little part of my brain said, you need to pee. And then another little part of my brain said, sleep is the best thing in the world. And then my body said, yeah, you're right. (laughs) And I didn't get up. And here's, guys, here's the worst, here's the worst part. Here's the worst part of the story. I left the house and didn't tell my wife. And my beautiful, loving, understanding 
caring, compassionate wife just loves to roll over to my side of the bed when I leave. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. My life has been a little mundane these past few months. (laughs) Raising a baby, it seems like you get into this constant pattern of waking up, going to work, doing baby stuff, going back to bed, hopefully not wetting that bed. So how do I remain grateful in the mundane? How do I remain grateful in those moments when it seems like life is just passing me by? When it seems like time is just going on, but nothing's really happening. I recognize that God is doing so much more than I could ever do. I recognize that God is doing twice as much as I could even think that he's doing. And I get help from others. I get help from people who can take care of my baby so that I actually get enough rest at night. I get help from family. I get help from loved ones. I'm thankful for the people who help us. I'm most thankful of all to God who is going above and beyond and whose grace allows me to not only live through the mundane, but be grateful in it. So we've talked about being grateful in the miraculous, right? Because it's easy, because we can see God's plan clearly. We've talked about being grateful in the mundane because we know that God is doing twice as much as we could ever know. But what do we do whenever we feel miserable? What do we do when we, in our life, feel miserable? Let's talk about Paul for a second. If I'm ranking the people who had the most miserable life in Scripture, like Job is up there, but Paul, man, he went through a lot. Listen to how Paul describes his own life. I know I sound like a madman. This is Paul talking. But I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. That's how Paul described his life. That sounds pretty miserable to me. So let's look at Acts chapter 16. Starting in verse 16, it says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit in which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So not only is this woman enslaved to a demon, she's also enslaved to a master. Verse 17, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. I think it's funny that the demon isn't even lying. The demon is following them around and just shouting, they're preaching about salvation. (laughs) You know, it's not a lie. It's just annoying in that moment. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became annoyed. He became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. You know, to Paul's credit, I, I don't have nearly as much patience as he does. I get annoyed whenever my alarm goes off for several seconds. This woman followed him around for several days and was just screaming the whole time. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and dragged them 
into the marketplace to face the authorities. Notice they weren't happy because the demon was gone. They were upset because their cash cow had just been cut off. Verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates, we would call them judges today, and said, these men are Jews. They are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. They were sharing Jesus. That's all that they were doing. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. The magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet with stocks. This is a pretty miserable circumstance. You've been thrown into jail. You've been, the, the head guard has been told to watch you carefully. So it's easy for me to be thankful when I can see God's hand in Amara's life with her miraculous birth. And I'm okay with being thankful and I can practice being thankful and being, um, having a heart of gratitude whenever I'm in the mundane because I know that God is working on my behalf. But what's it like whenever you're in the miserable? Less than two hours after Amara was born, um, she started having breathing problems. Um, and then she was sedated. She was put on a ventilator and transported to another hospital because they didn't have room in the hospital where she was born. At one point, we weren't even allowed to touch our own daughter. That's miserable. We were miserable. And it's a different kind of miserable than Paul and Silas were going through because theirs was physical affliction. But believe me, it was miserable nonetheless. So let's pick up in the story with Paul and Silas. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once... All the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, which means that the jailer was asleep. The jailer woke up and when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. You see, true gratitude is not dependent on a circumstance. But instead, it is thankful despite of the circumstance. They had plenty to be thankful for, and so did Johanna and I. After the nurse explained to us that our daughter would die without help breathing, and that they would have to transfer her to a different hospital, I looked at the nurse and I said, okay, thank you. I had gratitude towards that nurse. And she replied, are you okay? You see, she wasn't used to having people be thankful in that kind of a circumstance, but my gratitude wasn't based on a circumstance. Did you notice that Paul and Silas didn't leave? Paul and Silas could have left prison, right? But they didn't. Why was it 
important to them not to leave because the most important thing to them was not getting out. It was being thankful in that circumstance. Maybe God is trying to tell you that if your gratitude doesn't continue in the miserable, in other words, if your gratitude doesn't stay consistent when things get hard, then your gratitude wasn't genuine in the first place. Hear me on this. It's easy to be to have. It's easy to have gratitude whenever things are going well, whenever you can see the miraculous. And it's not necessarily difficult, but it's not easy to have gratitude when things are mundane. But it's hard to have gratitude whenever things aren't going well, whenever things are miserable. But if you don't practice gratitude in the miraculous, if you don't practice gratitude in the mundane, you're definitely not going to have gratitude when it comes to the miserable. You're definitely not going to have gratitude when it comes to things going bad. Are you withholding your gratitude from God until he delivers you out of your circumstance? I want you to think about that question. Are you telling God, I will only be, I will only have a heart of gratitude towards you. I will only be grateful to you if you deliver me out of this circumstance. Or are we thankful to God in the circumstance that we find ourselves? Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The reason that that nurse asked me, are you okay? Was because she wasn't used to seeing people having gratitude in that moment. If we live our lives in such a way that we have gratitude, that we are beyond grateful in whatever circumstance we find ourselves, people will come to know Jesus because they'll recognize in that moment, this isn't normal. This isn't how most people react. When you get thrown in jail for serving Jesus and you're singing hymns, people will come to know Jesus because they can see that your mindset is set on gratitude instead of set on the circumstance that you find yourself. I think it's so powerful when we can see a believer who we know to be a believer going through a circumstance, going through a physical ailment that's in a wheelchair that just lost everything. And they're still thankful to God. There's something so powerful about that because we know that their faith is genuine and that it lasts What is our response to the miraculous, to the mundane, and to the miserable? May our response always be gratitude.